Ephesians chapter 5, and tonight we'll study verses 17 through 18. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. One of the major applicational themes of the New Testament is that we have already been saved from the eternal penalty of sin by grace through faith, apart from any works that we might do on our part, apart from any personal individual merit. And because we've been saved by grace through faith, apart from any individual merit, we have the responsibility then to live in accordance with our new position in Christ. That's a theme that all of the New Testament writers follow through on. And following his customary pattern, Paul in his letter to the Ephesians lays out a beautiful doctrinal case in the first three chapters, outlining the many blessings that we enjoy as a result of Christ's work on the cross and God's electing grace. Those are the first three chapters. Then, in the final three chapters, he outlines the behavior that's expected of the believer in view of the blessings that we enjoy. Now, there are five areas that our lifestyle should be marked by. We should walk in in these five areas. And before I put them up on the board, and don't say it out loud, but I want, I want you to mentally think of how many five you remember. Let me give you the first one. We're to walk in unity. Just think for a moment. Do you remember some of the others? Love, light. What are we studying right now? Wisdom. Exactly. So you're actually getting it. Unity is, is chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Holiness. We were to walk in holiness. I think I heard that one. Chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Paul tells us to walk in love. And this is really central. When we get down to the end of all this, we're going to see that this is the central aspect of the Christian's behavior post-salvation. We are to walk in love. Remember Paul said that the goal of all of his instruction was love. And it's no accident that this is the middle of the five. In chapter 5, verses 7 through 14, Paul tells us that we should walk in light or have a lifestyle that's characterized by light. And then finally, we're studying right now that we should walk in wisdom. Chapter 5, verse 15 through chapter 6, verse 9. This is a bit of an extended section. This is where we are right now. In our study last week, we began to consider some, some things with regard to wisdom. And we saw that there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge although the two are certainly related. But there is a difference. There's a distinction between the two. It's possible to have knowledge without wisdom, but it's very improbable that you're going to have wisdom without knowledge. It's possible, but it's improbable. Wisdom, if we were to define it in one phrase, wisdom is knowledge properly applied. Wisdom is knowledge properly applied. In this section, we're encouraged to live a life characterized by wisdom as a result of being filled by means of God's Holy Spirit. Now, so many times we study this verse that we'll study tonight. At least we're going to begin to study it tonight. It's such an important verse that I'm, I'm afraid I, I feel like I need to introduce some things tonight. Let it gestate for a little bit. Then we're going to come back and, and consider some more of it next week. But in Ephesians 5.18, so many times in books on pneumatology, in lectures on the Holy Spirit, We'll take Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. We'll take that verse in isolation, completely divorced from its context, and many good points are made about that, but it's going to mean so much more to you, I believe, once we look at what's going on in the context and why Paul introduces that concept right in the middle of a section where he's telling us to walk in wisdom. And then after we get what the, the meaning in the context 
the actual meaning, then we can broaden out into significance in other areas, other areas of theological application in our lives. So wisdom is, a, is to live a life characterized, I'm sorry, is, in this section we're to live a life characterized by wisdom as a result of being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Wise living, Paul will tell us, will be the key to successful interpersonal relationships. And he's going to mention several. He's going to mention a relationship between a husband and a wife, the relationship between parents and their children, and then finally the relationship between slaves and masters. But in today's culture, we can understand that as between employers and employees. These are relationships with whom, these are people with whom we probably become more familiar than anyone else. And familiarity, as I believe it was Augustine that first said it, we can't tell for sure, but familiarity breeds contempt. Because, and it seems as though the people that we know the most, that we're closest to, that we love the most, that oftentimes we have the hardest time getting along with. It almost doesn't make sense. It's almost like an oxymoron, but we love them the most, but sometimes it's, it's difficult to get along with them because of the familiarity concept. Sometimes it's easier to get along with people we don't see very often. But that's not the Christian way of life. The Christian way of life is that we have a God-honoring marriage, that we have God-honoring relationships with our children and with our parents. And then when we're at work, we don't don the clothes of secularism on Monday morning and then take them off on Friday and don the clothes of, of the church on Sunday morning, that we wear the same outfit all week long, that we do our jobs as unto the Lord, and we recognize the responsibilities that we have. Now, this, this portion of the chapter that we'll be coming to in a couple of weeks is not an easy portion, especially in today's culture. The idea of, of a wife submitting to a husband or children, heaven forbid, obeying their parents, two different words, by the way. You know, these are foreign concepts and really have been for a couple of decades, if not three or four decades. So while we may say, well, what's the big deal about that? It's, it's probably because you grew up three or four decades ago, and we, we haven't looked back in the rearview mirror very often and seen what's going on behind us. But there are serious problems, and these are difficult relationships. So let me give you a clue before we actually get there. There's a reason why Paul talks about being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit right in the middle of this particular section, right in the middle of the section that has to do with wisdom and wisdom being applied toward interpersonal relationships because it's a very very difficult thing. Now, verse 15 told us that we're to look carefully how we are walking, how we're living, as we examine our life and the things that characterize it. We, it's incumbent upon us to make a careful and objective evaluation of how things are really going. Are, am I really making wise decisions on a moment-by-moment basis? Now, maybe you haven't done this lately. Maybe you haven't just had some quiet time in the evening or in the morning or in the middle of the day, instead of going to lunch at, at your regular place, picking up a sandwich, go to a park somewhere, sit out there in the, in the sunshine in this beautiful weather we're having, and just do a little self-evaluation. Not self-flagellation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about beating ourselves up over past failures. But what I mean is, take a look at our life, and is my life has my life over the last month, a week, month, year, pick whatever time you want, has it been characterized by wisdom? Wisdom being making proper application of the theology we know, the doctrine, if you prefer that word, it's not a bad word, the doctrine that we know to life's individual situations. Now, I am not speaking about individual isolated failures. Everybody has those. I have them, you have them, the Apostle Paul had them, we all do. 
So I'm not talking about calling our lives a failure because we can say, well, gosh, last month I did this. I just can't believe I did that. And you know how we do it. We'll forgive everybody about ourselves sometimes. And that's one of the things that we need to remember that if, if God has forgiven us, it's time for us to move on too. But I'm talking more about an overall evaluation, the kind of evaluation Jesus is going to do at the judgment seat of Christ. Remember we talked about that on Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago. A critical lesson, by the way. Do you remember how Abraham's life was evaluated as being a righteous person? Even though we know good and well, chapter 12, chapter 20, at least those two times, he certainly wasn't living righteously. But God looked at the overall pattern. And so Paul is encouraging us to take a careful look at how we're walking. Am I walking in wisdom? Now, I know this theology because these are, you're the hardcore ones. You're out here on a Wednesday night. You come every Wednesday night. You, we study these difficult, challenging books. You know theology. If we were to have a basic theological exam, I know all of you would pass with flying colors, if not, if not aces. So we know what to do. I don't really think that's the problem, although we can never know too much. That's why we remind ourselves on a regular basis. That's why we're in the Word from Genesis to Revelation. But am I doing what I'm supposed to do with the theology that I know? That's very James-like, isn't it? Am I doing that? So Paul tells us to examine our lives and see what characterizes it? Is my life characterized by anger and irritation and impatience? Or is my life characterized by love? Now, hopefully you'll be able to say it's characterized by love. It's characterized by wise living. It's characterized by holiness and, and living in light, living in wisdom. But it's something each of us has to do ourselves. Now, this is what I don't want you to do. And I don't think Paul does it here either. I want you to evaluate your own life. I don't want you to evaluate mine. I don't want to evaluate yours. Don't evaluate your spouse's or your friend's. This is about you and God. It's not about you and somebody else. If you start, if you immediately drift to thinking of, you know what, I'm going to sit down, I've, I've got to straighten them out, then something went wrong in this exercise. That's happened before. I have a dear friend, and she won't, she doesn't live in this state, and, and I won't say her name because this is an unlovely thing, but she, she saw one of these passages one time and decided that she had a few friends that needed a little straightening out. And she got on her phone, and she picked a list of, I think, seven. I might have been the eighth person, but either I didn't answer the phone or she didn't call. I'm very glad. And she, this is a wonderful lady, by the way, she just had a momentary blip on the radar. And she picked up the phone, and she started going right down her list and saying, person A, this, these are a few bones I have to pick with you, and I don't think you're living your life this way. I don't like the, your language. I don't like the fact that you don't give enough at church. Whatever it was, there was a whole lot of things on her list. Oh, boy, I got calls all night long. Did, did you get a phone call? No, I didn't. <laughs> you know, I'm glad I didn't. Didn't mean I was perfect, I guarantee you, on that, on that one. But, boy, did she feel bad two or three days later when she went right back through that same list and apologized to everybody on it for minding their business. She didn't realize that she needed to look in the mirror first. And this is a self-examination that we need to do. And we all need to do it because this, the, the life that we live is far too important to live it without exam. Now, there's, uh, over the course of my life, I think I have at least 12 years of college and various different things, not counting, under, not counting high school and such as that. And every now and then you'll run across a course that has no test. You know what? When you go into that course, the student generally likes it. Look at those tests. I just got to write a paper or, you know, I had one silly course one time where the fellow 
passed the paper around at the end of the course and said, just tell me what grades you want. There's no said, tell me what grades you want. So when it, came to, when, I, when, I, when it came time for me to put my name, everybody was putting A's. All these fellows and girls that had never made an A in their life, they're putting A's down, A's in. They came to me and I said, I'm not going to answer this stupid question. You give me whatever it is you want. Well, he didn't give me an A. He gave everybody else in the class an A. He gave me a C. And he, and he probably yeah, burned my grade point average for that semester, but I just wasn't going to do that. Anyway, that's a, that's a little bit of a, an anacalusa. That's a little side note. But the point is, every now and then we need to take a test to see how far along we've gone to challenge ourselves, to see exactly where we are. And so that's what Paul is wanting us to do. Are we making are we making good decisions that are consistent with God's revealed will? And that sounds a whole lot like the Word of God, doesn't it? Because that's the primary way that God reveals his will to us today is through his Word. So obviously, before I'm going to make decisions that are consistent with his revealed will, what do I need to know? His revealed will. And so that's why we need to spend time daily, not weekly, not monthly, but daily in the Word of God. I talk to people occasionally from different places. I mean, not just the United States, but even overseas that one way or another will contact me. And what I find sometimes is that people who have been negligent about their study of the Word will get into a real difficult situation. And then one fellow told me he was listening to eight tapes a day. You know, eight, eight lessons of mine a day. I said, wow, I, I wouldn't listen to eight lessons of mine a day. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't listen to eight lessons of anybody a day. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be better to listen to one a day for eight days in a row and then one a day for the next eight days in a row? You see, that's the way we really learn. But I, and, and I guess there's certainly nothing wrong with spending more than an hour a day in the Word, you know, maybe morning, noon, and evening, something like that. But, but it w- wouldn't it be much better to learn a little bit at a time and then have that reservoir to pull from? When, again, when I was in, in college, I developed a habit of studying ahead of time for exams. I never liked to study for an exam on the last night before an exam. Oh, I wish I could have imparted that to a couple of my kids. <laughs> you know, you, Because even if you do pass the test the next day, two or three days later, you have completely forgotten the material. So the best way, I believe, this is just me, the best way to pass an examination with flying colors is to know the material and so I usually tried to have my studying finished so that the night before the exam, I slept like a baby. I wasn't up all night trying to, to cram in last-minute information. And I think that's the way it is with the Word of God, too. We need to study it a little bit at a time, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit the next day, a little bit the next day. But consistency is what we need. So if we're to know what God's revealed will is and apply it, then we need to study the Word on a regular basis. I don't think that's a problem with this audience, to be sure, but we need reminding of that sometime as well. Now, there are times when we face a situation for which we don't have a chapter and verse. You've asked me questions like that before. You know, is there, is there a passage on this? Well, no, there's not a passage that specifically talks about you know, that particular situation, but there's a principle in the Bible about that, and we can turn here. So, there may not be chapter and verse for every specific thing. When there's not chapter and verse for every specific thing, then the application of God's revealed will to a particular situation becomes more challenging. Now, actually, I have to back up and say that the application of God's will is challenging, really, no matter how much you know of the Word, and even if there is chapter and verse. And we need the Holy Spirit 
no matter what the situation. In, in fact, there's a, there's a question here that it is begged that I want to ask and then answer tonight as well, at least do my best to begin. It's a serious question. We have all this information. We know that we're supposed to apply it in this way. But how's that going to be done? Since both the Old Testament and the New Testament assert that the ability to understand the things of God and hence apply them is a gift of God. Both Old Testament and New Testament assert that. How does this actually work out in practice? We're supposed to live wisely, and I have all this information, but the Word tells me that to live wisely ultimately is going to be a gift from God because I'm neither going to understand it nor be able to apply it without God's help. Well, then, how's this going to work out? Well, I'm glad you asked. The answer to that comes up in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. But before we get there, in chapter 5, verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So we saw that we're to walk in unity, holiness, love, light, and wisdom, all of these being interrelated, but they culminate in wise living. I think they're centered in love, but they culminate in wise living. But how is wise living possible? Well, it's possible by means of the Holy Spirit. But look at verse 17 as we get started first tonight. In verse 17, the phrase is translated, or the verse, the verse is translated, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay. That seems like it's pretty self-evident. We've been talking about that all night and even last week as well. The phrase translated in New American Standard, so then, would actually be better rendered if we were to stay consistent with the original text on account of this. Now, not on account of the fact that the days are evil, although that's included in it, but on account of everything that's been mentioned between in verses 15 and 16, on account of that, Paul warns us as believers not to be foolish. See, so far he said, don't live as unwise, but wise. Now he's going to say, don't live as foolish people, but live as people who have understanding. So he draws parallels between those two items. Therefore, or so then, or on account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. A foolish person lacks understanding and despises knowledge according to Proverbs chapter 17, verse 18, and chapter 1, verse 22. A foolish person, biblically defined, is not someone who has a low IQ. A foolish person, biblically defined, is a person who lives consistently, consistently in opposition to the revealed will of God. Pretty simple, isn't it? That's a fool. A fool is someone who knows what they're supposed to do, but then consistently refuses to do it. The Bible doesn't really define a fool as someone who knows what to do and then periodically doesn't do it, although there's no excuse for that. I'm just saying that that's not what the biblical definition of a fool is. A fool is someone who consistently doesn't do what they are supposed to do. A foolish person who's one, is one who's lived consistently in opposition to the revealed will of God. And also, since it's the revealed will of God that we... Know the revealed will of God. Psalm 119 is one of the great passages on that. A fool would also be someone who refuses to learn the word of God. Another way to understand this is that the believer is not to dabble in foolishness. 
We're not to become foolish, and we're not to continue in it if we happen to stray in that direction. Most of us wouldn't say that we are drawn toward foolishness. We would uh, be put off by that, I think. But in, in, in our actual practice, sometimes we, <laughs> it's almost like things are going too well right now. I'm going to dabble in something that's going to get me in trouble. And the problem is once we dabble, then we tend to stay over in that direction. Once we stick our little toe in the water, sometimes the rocks slip and then we fall in altogether. And what, was, what began as dabbling becomes as immersion in foolishness. So we're not to be foolish. We're not to become foolish. But on the other hand, we're to understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, the contrast between the first half of that verse and the second half of that verse is severe. There are different ways for the Greeks to draw contrast. One of them, the strongest one they could have used is Allah, A-L-L-A, not, not, the, not the Islamic Allah. This is a different Allah, A-L-L-A. It's the, it's the strongest possible contract, co- contrast the Greeks could have used. So there's a, there is, in the Apostle Paul's mind here, there's no stronger contrast between the fool and the one who is exercising understanding or has understanding. The individual Christian must put themselves in a position to hear the word of God and to understand the word of God, or perhaps even better to comprehend the word of God, for this is where God's will is revealed. That's verse 17. So, if we're to do this, how is it to happen? Now we come to verse 18. I want you to, and I want you even now, as we're studying verse 18, to keep thoroughly in your mind where this is, not only in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but in the, in the midst of this discussion on Christian living, and then where it, resu- where, where it relates in the middle of that discussion. Is it in the doctrinal section or the application section of, the, of Paul's letter? No, it's, of course, in the application section. And it's, it, it is in the portion of Paul's letter, not that it's talking about unity, love, light, holiness, but the, the section that's talking about wisdom. And it is going to precede information that speaks about wise living when it comes to interpersonal relationships. You following me? That's where it is. Now let's see what it says. Don't get drunk with wine, or possibly don't get drunk by means of wine, either a date of a means or it could be with, either one is fine. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, we have a fairly strong contrast here as well. Same Greek term. Now, Paul is going to move from the general to the specific. One example of unwise living is drunkenness. Agreed? Agreed. Now, I want to make one note that I feel like has to be made. And any time I've ever taught this passage, whether it be in, in this location, this venue, or at a, in an academic setting, say at a Bible college or, or even overseas, there's something I always want to bring up because there is much misunderstanding about this. And I want to make sure we're all clear. Paul, in this passage, is not making an argument against the consumption of wine. He's not saying that to drink a glass of wine is evil or sinful. He would have been 
much wiser than that because our Lord himself made wine. And our Lord himself drank wine. And it wasn't grape juice. There was no way in the ancient world to maintain grape juice. There wasn't any refrigeration. There, there was no such thing as grape juice. Now, in the ancient world, they did oftentimes take their wine and dilute it so it would be more difficult to become inebriated. But at the wedding at Cana, there is no indication at all that that's diluted wine. Even the wine steward comes out and says, you saved the best stuff for last. So we don't want to go down that silly road that some people go down that say, a very judgmental road, that says it's a sin to drink wine. Now, there are occasions when it can be sinful, but not in and of itself. If, for example, you're on the faculty of a seminary, and that, faculty, and that seminary has a, a mandate that their faculty members don't drink any alcoholic beverage, and you sign that, then that's, you signed it. And so, therefore, you're not to drink it. Um, if you are with someone who is a, an alcoholic, and you know that seeing you have a drink is going to perhaps encourage them to have one as well, then it's incumbent upon you not to have one. But in and of itself, drinking a glass of wine is not sinful. What this passage is arguing against is drunkenness. Now, a lot of Christians argue against the consumption of any kind of alcohol, and that's their privilege. But when they try to make a biblical case for that argument, the biblical case is going to come up uh, rather weak. They can't argue that successfully from the Bible, in my view. If you do, you're going to have a real hard problem with our Lord himself. Now, our Lord drank wine, but he never got drunk, so that shows you it can be done. By the way, they drank wine and often, oftentimes because the water itself was life curative. So it wasn't necessarily, just because you drank a glass of wine didn't mean you were attempting to get drunk. So it's pure legalism to demand that other believers abstain from wine altogether. I just wanted to make sure that we had that on the, on the table. I am in no way advocating the excessive use of wine. Neither is Paul. In fact, that's the point that he's making here, is that the excessive use or wine of wine or any other alcoholic beverage, or by the way, any prescription or non-prescription drug item, or any illegal or illegal drug, any of that can be abused to make one either drunken or in some state that's synonymous with that. Okay, are we all clear here? So it's, it's not that you can't get drunk on wine, but you can take 12 Vicodin or however many. I guess that would be too much. You know. <laughs> More, you know, or even one Vicodin, whatever it is. You know what I mean. But you know, these people get hooked on them. Sometimes very famous people do. And it's, it's no different than getting hooked on alcohol. The point is that we have let go of control of our faculties, and we typically do it voluntarily, although sometimes people do it accidentally. Most time it's voluntary. Now, this is going to be something that I want all of you to act like you have no knowledge of whatsoever, but I need to put it in the record. Intoxicated people are not in control of their faculties and are prone to act foolishly. Thank you all for acting like that's never happened to you, and I hope that it has. But it's a reality for a lot of people. Intoxicated people are not in control. What's in control? The alcohol. Exactly. The drugs. Um, Viking is the only one I can think of. Percodan used to be one. I think 
Johnny Carson was addicted to Percodan at one time. You know, there, there are painkillers that people get addicted to. But the point is that you lose control. Maybe not total control. Some people get hooked on these drugs and they function at a very high level in their job. But they've lost some control. They've turned the control over to the pill. They've turned the control of their life over to, some, to a liquid. And usually they do it because they have deep issues, problems, pain. I'll say because he said it himself personally that it's scary. <laughs> like scared by looking at you. Rush Limbaugh, for example, was addicted. And this is a public thing, so I'm not saying anything untrue. Rush Limbaugh was addicted to, to painkillers. And I, and I read his personal testimony on that. And he said that he was addicted to painkillers after the first tablet because of the way that it made him feel. He had all these people for right, wrong, indifferent, whatever. That's not the point here tonight. But all these people that were, that were, um, that were happy with him or that were complimentary of him. And, you know, that's, I think he kind of liked that sometimes. But, but nevertheless, at least publicly he did, privately he did. But as soon as he took that pill, he didn't care. And so his testimony is that he was hooked after the first pill. Not after a dozen pills. He was hooked after the very first one. And he realized he had to solve the problem. And the problem was more than just taking the pill. The problem was what caused him to take the pill in the first place. So we need to be careful because intoxicated people are not in control of their faculties and are prone to act foolishly. Now, what is foolishness? Biblically, it was not applying God's revealed will to a particular circumstance. It's more difficult if one is inebriated or, I guess, high, would be another way to put it. It's more difficult to apply God's revealed will to a particular circumstance. And deep in your soul, you still know what it is. But since one's guard has been dropped down, then we're more prone to do things that we wouldn't do otherwise. All joking aside, that's, that happens to Christians as well as non-Christians. Now, dissipation is the word asotia. Asotia is undisciplined living. Undisciplined living, or excessive living, or perhaps ruinous living. The word asotia is this word right here. A-S-O, that's an O, T-I-A, for those on this side. This is where we get asotia from. So this first, these first two lines say this. And do not become drunk with wine, or by means of wine. This is the word for wine. In which is asotia. Now, asotia, if we were to, to put all those things together, really means a wasted life. That's what it is. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of life. It's a ruinous life. To live your life uh, inebriated. And again, what Paul's doing is he's giving us one example of unwise living. It's unwise to live our lives this way. Also, now this, be careful here. I'm not joking now. There's no, no humor in this at all. A lot of times, people will turn to chemicals and alcohol to deal with interpersonal problems. I think some wives do it. Sometimes mothers do it because they're having trouble handling their children. A lot of, lot of reasons for this. And sometimes those drugs are prescribed by physicians. So you need to be very, very careful. Just because something is prescribed, now I'm not practicing medicine without a license, but you've got to be careful. Just because something is prescribed, make sure you, you talk to that physician about what are the effects going to be. Am I still going to be in control of my faculties? Am I still going to be able to make wise decisions? Because some of these drugs will turn you into a zombie. So don't be drunk with wine, 
but which is dissipation, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. Don't have a wasted life. Now, there's another Allah here, and I want to show you what it looks like in Greek. It's this word right here, A-L-L-A. These are two L's, A-L-L-A. That's that real strong adversative conjunction. That's the real strong word that says but, but with a capital B. There's, there's, these are polar opposites, Paul is saying, just like he did before. Foolishness and understanding, there are polar opposites between these first two lines and the second two. The first two lines, again, are you, you have them in your Bible. I didn't put them up here in translation. And don't, be, don't become drunk with wine, which is, that's, that's the word for which is there, which is dissipation or a waste of time. But, now what follows that but is going to be in stark contrast to what came before. But be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. So first the negative, and then Paul gives us the positive. Now, the contrast here that Paul is making is not so much between wine, we're here, and spirit, this last word, although that, there is a contrast being made there. The contrast is between the two resulting states. What results from the consumption of wine and what results from being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. Getting drunk by means of wine leads to dissipation or a wasted life, at least if it's done on a consistent basis. But being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit leads to wise living, as we're going to see in the next paragraph. And that wise living includes appropriate interaction with those that we're closest to. Now, the means of this filling is the Holy Spirit. Now I'll go to this slide, which I put up a little too early a minute ago. In this slide, we see a glass of water being filled up. Now, what you don't see is, is someone with a pitcher here pouring that in. We tried to make our own amateur version today, and, and Mike, it didn't come out like I wanted it to. So, so I got a better version. Now, sometimes people look at the idea of being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit this way. They look at it as a glass and the, and the water being, water here representing the Holy Spirit, and, and we have a, our soul here, and when, when we're filled up by means of the Holy Spirit, it means we get more of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's, there's an idea that the Holy Spirit is the content of the filling. Actually not. Not if we look very closely at the passage. The content, well, one view of the content, as I said, is that the Holy, it's the Holy Spirit himself. Lewis Spray Chafer argued against this view as far back as 1918. Now, remember what's happening in 1918 theologically? Anybody remember your church history well enough to know what was the major theological issue of the day in 1918? Pentecostalism, exactly. It was brand new. It was just cutting its teeth. And when, when Lewis Spray Chafer wrote the book, He That Is Spiritual, he's actually responding to this very new movement that's being called Pentecostalism. That's, that's the purpose of the heathen is spiritual. And in Pentecostalism, at least one of the early tenets of Pentecostalism, was that when I'm filled up with the Holy Spirit, then I receive more of the Holy Spirit than I had just a few moments ago. And they would often associate that with some sort of ecstatics and whatnot. Now, Chafer very rightly argued that the believer will never have more of the Holy Spirit than that believer had at the very instant that they were saved. So the issue is not getting more of the Holy Spirit. 
The issue is the Holy Spirit getting more of you. You see, the Holy Spirit hadn't gone anywhere. So what Schaefer argued, and he, he rightly argues, and he that is spiritual, is that the filling of the Spirit is not getting more of the Spirit. It's not getting the glass filled up with the Holy Spirit. Actually, what we find here is that the Holy Spirit is going to be doing the filling. But really, the, the view that it's the Holy Spirit himself, that is, that we're filled up with more of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's the problem with almost every English translation. And I rarely ever say this, but every English translation punted and used a very common word with, which could, which could actually be understood a couple different ways, to cover themselves. And that's unfortunate because we get the idea that the Holy Spirit is the content of the filling. But that's untenable from a theological point of view because once you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, it's not like you can have half the Holy Spirit. Half the Holy Spirit indwells you, half leaves. Of course, that's, that's silliness. So it's untenable from a theological point of view, but it's also doubtful from an exegetical point of view. Now, we have to get into cases of nouns for just one second. But the, the, this noun, let me go back. No, I'll go forward. The noun, or this noun phrase, this is an E, that's an N, in eumachi. That's in there. I don't, wanna, I don't need necessarily need to explain the details of this, but that's what, that's what we call a dative in the Greek language. There are datives in other languages too. But that's a dative. Now, normally, verbs of filling, this is the word that says be filled with, or be filled, it doesn't say the end, be filled. Normally, a word like that is followed by a noun that's in the genitive. Now, that's a different case. And again, I don't want to go through all the endings. That's not the point. The point is, if the Holy Spirit was the content of the filling, right, then this is in the wrong case. What this case tells us is that the Holy Spirit is the one that's doing the filling. Right? Now, you following me? I know this is challenge. This can be challenged because it may be different than, than maybe what you've, what you've understood in the past. Let's do this again. This isn't the Holy Spirit in, in this representative illustration. The Holy Spirit is the one up here holding the picture and is filling you. Are you seeing it? And I, again, it's, it's a subtle difference than maybe what, what maybe some of you grew up with, but if you studied under um, anybody that studied under Lewis Ferry Schaefer or part of that tradition, this, this may make more sense, and probably that's most of it, because that's pretty much everybody that came out of Dallas Seminary studied under Schaefer at one time or another. So the, the filling is God, the Holy Spirit, holding the bucket and pouring something into us to use this metaphor that we have up here. Now, as we get ready to close, and I, and I want to just do, I wanted to introduce this tonight to let you think about it for a little bit. We'll come back and, and see the significance of it next time. But if the Holy Spirit is not the content and we're to be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit, then what are we filled up with? You ever thought of that? <laughs> well, sure. It's a legitimate question. How are, we, how are we to know? Because guess what? Verse 18 doesn't tell us. It just tells us that we're to be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. So, what's the content? Well, briefly, as we close, let, let me point one thing out to you, and then we'll pick this up next time as well. The closest reference to this, and that's what we do in exegetical studies, 
we, the, the closest reference is more likely the right one, not always, but most likely. The closest reference to what the content could be comes back to Ephesians chapter 3. We don't have to go to another book. We just have to go back two chapters to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. Now, if you, if you were paying real, real close attention, I told you when we studied Ephesians 3, 19, that this is going to come up big later. And now, now here's the later, and it's coming up big. In, that, in verse 19, and to know that this is, by the way, part of Paul's prayer. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, with regard to the closest reference, what we're being, what's being poured into us is all the fullness of God. Now, one may argue the Holy Spirit's God, so why is the Holy Spirit part of that? But, but hang in there with me. Yes, he is, but that's, there's more to it than just us getting more of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we go and look at 319 and see what Paul was talking about in 319, what did he mean by all the fullness of God? What he meant there was the, when he used this, this term, the fullness of God, was the content, the content of God's moral excellence and power. The content of God's moral excellence and power, which was, by the way, and this ought not to surprise us, to know the love of Christ. We got that from Ephesians chapter 3. We've already studied that. That's why I told you at the time, this is going to come up big later. So what Paul meant in, Romans, in, in Ephesians chapter 3 when he talked about being filled up to all the fullness of God was that they would be, we would be filled with the content of God's moral excellence and power. Don't forget the word power, which is to know the love of Christ. That's the content. Now, I know, I know it's a bit cumbersome. We're going to narrow it down a little bit next week and, probably, and, and try to put that into um, a little more concise terminology. But remember, here the subject is wise living. So the Holy Spirit fills us up to the fullness of God or with the fullness of God so that as a result of being filled up with all the fullness of God, we might understand what the will of the Lord is and live wisely. Now you see the connection. Old Testament and New Testament say we're not going to do this without God's help. It's a gift of God. Here's the gift. The gift is that God pours into us all the fullness of God, which consists of God's moral excellence and his power, but it all boils down to knowing, and I mean really knowing, not just knowing about, but knowing the love of God. We kind of come full circle tonight. If you remember, we started off with an assertion that, that all of Paul's epistles were written so that we might know how to love appropriately. That's the bottom line when it comes to all wisdom when it comes to all application of doctrine. So the subject's wise living. The Holy Spirit fills us with all the fullness of God so that we might understand what the will of the Lord is and to live wisely. This stands in stark contrast with one to ones who are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, once again, fills us with the fullness of God so that we might understand, not just for grins, not so that we can dance around and speak in tongues. That was never part of it. You talk about a gross misapplication that was, that was made in the late 1800s. It was never part of it. The reason we're filled up by means of the Holy Spirit is so that we can live wisely and appropriately apply the theology that we know to life circumstances. 
uh, more on this when we gather uh, together again next week. I hope we'll hold your attention until that time. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this incredible, incredible blessing that Paul here calls being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. To think for one minute that we might be filled up with all your fullness, the fullness of God, and, to, and that we might be filled up with the content of your moral excellence and empowerment and influence. Influence to help us live our lives in the way that they should be lived and to serve you in the way that you should be served. What a great blessing that is. We can't do it by ourselves. I think all of us have tried from time to time, but all of us know we cannot live the Christian life apart from divine empowerment, apart from divine influence. And we thank you because that's exactly what we have. And help us to live this week until we meet again next Wednesday night under the influence, the influencing ministry of the Holy Spirit and moved and changed by the content of your own moral excellence and power. And may we live consistently with the love of Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name.